0: Well, there's some things in life that are just so insignificant that you don't have to have an opinion about them, right? Like Taylor Swift's new album. I didn't even know she was still making music. How's that? Central Coast Mariners, anyone? Who, who even are they, right? Like, Prince Harry and Meghan. Who gives, a, like, <laughs> I can't say that. <gasps> who cares what they're doing? Like, Who gives a hoot? Yeah, hoot. I don't give one hoot about them and what they're doing. (laughs) But there are some things that start to matter a little bit more that you start caring about it, right? And you start having to have opinions about it, right? So KFC or Maccas. That's important. Obviously, there's obviously a right answer to that. And I don't want to waste my time and money with an inferior takeout. I'll let you think what you're going to think there. But then there are some things that demand an opinion from you. You can't not have an opinion about them. What if I got up here and I told you there's a bomb in the room, it's under one of your chairs, and it's about to go off? You have to have an opinion about that statement, right? If you got up and you just ran out of the room, your opinion would be, I'm serious. There's a bomb in here. But if you just keep sitting here like you are, you probably think I'm full of rubbish and there's no bomb in the room. It demands an opinion. I reckon as we read through Matthew, we hear about Jesus and we read stuff that demands your opinion. We've got to make up our minds about who we think Jesus is. What is your opinion about Jesus? Hopefully we can figure that out together tonight. Let me pray before we jump into that. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, we give you thanks for a new year, a new term. Uh, We thank you that we can read from your word and see the person of Jesus. I pray that we hear and see Jesus tonight, that we'll be able to make up our minds about who we think he is, and that you'd help us to be able to do that, and that you would give um, me clarity as we walk through this passage in your word, and pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So Jesus is someone that you've got to make up your mind about. I might stand here so you can see most of the PowerPoints. That's my first point. If you've got notebooks, take it down, jot it down. That's what we're going to be working through. Jesus is someone that you've got to make up your mind about. This is the first thing that we see in the passage that we're looking at tonight. Have a look in um, verse 13 of chapter 16. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man is just one of Jesus' ways of talking about himself, and he's looking for an opinion, an opinion that's out there from the people. So, what do the people think? Well, have a look in verse 14. It says, They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now that's a pretty weird answer, right? What's going on with John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah? What's with these people? Well, John the Baptist is dead, right? He's died recently. So some people think that Jesus is like the ghost of John the Baptist, and he's come with all his ghost powers, and that's how he's doing crazy stuff, right? He's, um, it's like a spiritual answer. It's a bit superstitious, right? Or some people are saying he's Elijah or Jeremiah. Now, what's with these guys? Well they were just these big bunces of the Old Testament. They were these big prophets who were close to God. God would speak to them and would speak to the people of Israel, right? God's people. And I reckon it's another way of saying, well, Jesus is like one of these big guys from the Old Testament. He's really wise. He's got heaps of insight and wisdom. He's a good guy, but he's not God. So the answer so far is that He's a spiritual ghosty person with lots of power, but he's not God. Or he's a good guy, but he's not God. They're the opinions so far. I reckon that's not fun to what a lot of people today think about Jesus. I think it's pretty hard to find anyone who actually thinks Jesus didn't exist, but it's pretty easy to find lots of different opinions about who Jesus is and what people think he is. And you can make your opinion about Jesus, this might be you, you might think those things about Jesus, he's pretty good or he's he's a good teacher or he's not God, you can make those opinions sound pretty reasonable. You can say, "I'm I'm not denying Jesus existed, I think Jesus was a real bloke And I'm happy for you to think what you're going to think about Jesus. That's cool with me. It's cool with you. I respect that. Sounds pretty reasonable. But do you hear what's behind that opinion? It could be that you think he's a good guy, but he's not God. See how it sounds reasonable, but behind it, you think it's a lie. And how good can something be if you think it's delusional? Or you do think he is God you're not interested in him you're not going to follow him in which case you're a straight out rebel against God often that's at the heart of the opinion about Jesus and who he is because if he is God that means I'm wrong about a whole bunch of stuff in my life and if he is God it means I have to change my life if I'm going to actually believe that's true Often we don't land at that conclusion because it means too much in our life has got to change. We all have these opinions about Jesus because who we decide he is has a big impact on our life. Let's have a look at another opinion in verse 15. Pick your Bibles up. This is Jesus again. He's asked the disciples what the crowds say. But then he says, but what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now we'll flesh this out, what it means to be the Messiah in a bit, but essentially it's a claim that Jesus is God himself. But notice how the question's personal. It's not about the crowds anymore. It's about what his disciples think. Jesus cares less about the crowds and more about individually what do his disciples think. And I reckon if you were there... Jesus would ask you, what do you think about who I am? And if Jesus was here in this room, I reckon he would walk up to each of you and go, who do you think I am? And he kind of does, doesn't he? As we pick up this Bible and we read this book, it jumps out at us and we ask this question to ourselves, wait, hang on a second, who do I really think Jesus is? If Jesus is God, what does that mean for my life? Well, If Jesus really is God, then it's the biggest moment in time in history that God has revealed himself and made himself known to humanity. He reveals his heart and his intentions, his desire to all people. It means that God is relational, that he's made you and loves you and cares for you enough to send his son to die for you. What do you really think about Jesus? What does your opinion boil down to? Have you been floating around here through youth for I don't know, a couple of years and you're kind of happy to admit that Jesus was a real guy and that he really was God, but you've got your own life that you don't want to let go of to give it up to follow Jesus? I want you to own that tonight. Sounds counterproductive for what I want you to do with your life, but I want you to own that. You're living as a rebel against God. Well, are you here and you think that this is all just a bit of a joke? I want to encourage you, push into that. Christianity isn't some fairy tale that can't be tested. No, it's these are real events that have happened in history. The tomb was empty. There were witnesses who put their fingers in Jesus' hands and feet of the resurrected Jesus. He was crucified. Use your brain and give Christianity a run for its money. See if you can prove it wrong. I dare you. Or are you someone who over the last bunch of years has slowly come to sort of doubt Jesus, doubt that he is God, doubt that he's good? Let me tell you, we all have doubts. I have doubts. We all have doubts. So, what do I do? I keep coming back to the Word of God and I see how it makes sense of the world that we live in. And I see Jesus in the Gospels and I see that He's not some fictional, fake cardboard cutout of a character, but that He's a real person. He's not made up and He's not crazy. He doesn't spurt crazy stuff. He speaks with an authority that doesn't sound made up at all. He speaks as though he actually does have authority. Why don't you pick up your gospel, start with the gospel of Mark, and read through it, and look at who Jesus is. See if he strikes you. Jesus, the man who walked the streets of Palestine and was crucified out the backyard of Jerusalem, is someone... (laughs) that you have to make up your mind about. You can't get away with not having an opinion about him. Own it, be honest with where you're at, and let's start from there, okay? So a helpful question that you might ask as you wrestle with this kind of stuff is what's stopping me from believing that Jesus really is God? Or maybe you do want to follow Jesus, but you're not ready. So what's stopping you from wanting to follow Jesus? What's the block? Let's talk about that. Talk to a leader about what you think. There's no judgment there. We're happy to meet you where you're at, and we're happy to talk about what's on your mind. Please grab us, talk to us. But if Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, what does that really even mean anyway? Which is my next point. What does this all mean? Let's figure this out. We saw in verse 16, somebody comes out with their opinion. We read that Simon Peter answered you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter's got an answer, right? The Messiah, Son of the living God. But does he know who that is? Who is the Messiah? What does that mean? Do we know what that means? What is a Messiah? Well, Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Masha, which means anointed with oil, right? As you go through the Old Testament, who do you reckon was anointed with oil? Give me some answers. I heard David whispered, just yell it out real loud. It's David, yeah, David's anointed with oil. You went like straight for the jugular. That's like the answer that I wanted. (laughs) Um, David, yeah, he's anointed with oil because he's made king. The kings of the Old Testament are anointed with oil as they become kings, right? So when I think king, what's something else that you think about? Give Give me a shout out again. Kingdom. Bam. Wow, this is like really, you guys are onto this. When I think king, I think kingdom. A king is the ruler of his kingdom. Now, imagine, well, wait, don't imagine yet. The king's job, right, is to bring peace and protection to the people that's in his kingdom. If a king doesn't care about that, he's not a very good king, is he, right? But Imagine a king is gone for a long time, he's been away, and while he's gone, his kingdom is ravaged by war and famine and death. It's a shambles, it's falling apart. But with the return of the king, what would you expect? You'd expect that he would bring his rule back, he would rally his armies and fight against the enemies of his kingdom, he'll destroy them and bring back peace to the people of his kingdom, right? That's what a king's job is. Like, imagine Aragorn. The story, you guys like know Lord of the Rings. We always go to Lord of the Rings. It's such a good thing. But Aragorn, his father, Isildur, he destroys Sauron on the slopes of Mount Doom. Do you remember the scene in the movie? Cuts off his finger, but he dies in the act. And Sauron sort of loses all his power. Isildur's dead, right? But Sauron still sort of lives, and he regains his strength. And while Sauron—I mean, Isildur's dead—Aragorn's just a ranger. Aragorn's a son of the king, and Sauron starts wreaking havoc on Middle-earth, right? He's like destroying things. Orcs are going everywhere. But with the return of Aragorn as king of Middle-earth, and his like crew of his mates. <laughs> He can't do it by himself. He brings back peace and protection to the people again. Now, in the Old Testament, that's exactly the type of picture of the Messiah, the King, the one who's expected to return. That's exactly the type of picture we get. So we're going to jump to an Old Testament passage to look at this in detail and flesh out what does Messiah mean in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at Psalm 110 on the screens. Um, And this is like the most quoted piece of literature that you'll ever read in the New Testament. The New Testament writers go back to this psalm again and again and again because it holds the keys to our concept of what a Messiah is, right? So it starts by saying, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make uh, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, who's speaking? Well, it's a psalm of David. So David's speaking, but he's saying, the Lord, God, says to my Lord. What does that mean? It means God is addressing the Lord of David, one greater than David, a greater king than David. So what does God say to this king? It says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, "'Rule in the midst of your enemies. "'Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, "'arrayed in holy splendor. "'Our young men will come to you "'like the dew of the morning's womb.'" It's a picture of complete conquest enemies will be in the midst of the king and the king will rule over them. His troops will be like the dew in the morning. Have you ever looked out onto your backyard in the morning and you see every single blade of grass and it's got this dew drop on it? That's the king's troops. They'll be like that and he'll bring destruction on his enemies. Have a look, keep coming down with me to verse 5. There's a bit in the middle but I've skipped it because we can't go through it all but it says, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Nothing is standing in the way of this king. God is at his right hand and even the kings of the enemies are crushed beneath his feet. Now when Peter says to Jesus... You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is exactly what he has in mind. This is the whole expectation of the Old Testament of who the Messiah is. A king who will come to crush enemies and save his people. Hectic, right? (laughs) I hope you feel how, how big that is. Now, is Peter wrong to say that Jesus is this Messiah, the son of the living God? No, Jesus doesn't turn around and go, whoa, 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 I'm not this guy. You got it all wrong. Uh, let's backpedal a bit here. No, have a look at what he says in verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus doesn't correct Peter. He affirms him. He goes, yeah, yeah. I am God's chosen king who will destroy his enemies and crush them to save his people. But the way I'm going to do it is die. What? How the heck is he going to do that by dying? Have a look in verse 21. Verse 21, it says, let me pick it up. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This can't be right. This looks like the enemies of God will destroy God and crush him. Not that God will crush and destroy his enemies. How is this possible? How can Jesus accomplish this? By dying. Now, you can imagine Peter's flipping out. He's like, what the heck is going on? And in fact, he does. Have a look in verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, what I reckon is happening for Peter, and it happens maybe for us in this moment as well, is that we completely miss the picture of who Jesus is, the type of Messiah he is. He's got the right idea that Jesus is the expected king who will destroy enemies and bring peace, but he's clueless about how that happens. Jesus won't destroy God's enemies by coming and dropping a bomb on them. He destroys God's enemies by coming and dropping a bomb on himself. He goes to the cross to die the death of God's enemies. How unexpected. See, we, you and me, each one of us, are the enemies of God. You and me. We've all been rebels and rejected God as King. Some of us live our lives as though God wasn't God at all. And you're saying to the God who made you, when you live your life like that, you're saying, I'm in charge. I'm going to run my life. I tell me what to do. Let me tell you, that was a sin of Adam and Eve. And it's a sin of us today. Each of us has done this. And it's the greatest offense to God, to the God who's made you who owns you and gave you life. To say that he's nothing to you and not part of your life is an offence to him. It's like that rat bag kid who says to his parents who've loved him and given him everything that he's got, stuff you, I hate you. Worse, You're saying that to a God who's much higher authority than your parents. Even your parents owe their existence to God. And that's who you're offending. God, the great king of the universe. If Jesus came to destroy the enemies of God, he would be coming for you. He would be coming for me. He would come to destroy you. Because that's what we are. We are enemies of God. This is what we deserve. Each one of us should be served the death penalty for our crimes against God. Imagine that the death penalty is served to you in a cup of hemlock poison. This is the, the poison of the ancient world. And when you'd committed a crime of treason against a king, you were given a cup to drink it. So, have you been a rebel to God? This is your your death penalty. This is your death penalty. This is yours. We've all been rebels to God. I want you to take one, keep it in your hands. This is a penalty that you actually we all deserve. Why don't you take that, just pass it around. the way Jesus could be king and rule with an iron scepter, the king that we saw in Psalm 110, the way that he could rule and put all his enemies under his feet could be to make each and every one of you drink the cup that you have. But instead, he goes to the cross to die To drink the cup of God's wrath against sin himself. And this is the way that he defeats the enemies, God's greatest enemies of sin, Satan and death, and brings humanity the greatest peace it needs peace with God. There's only one way to get peace with God. And it can't be to drink the cup yourself. To drink the cup yourself would be to drink God's wrath against your sin onto yourself. So that can't be the way that you get peace with God. The only way is by asking Jesus to drink the cup for you. Someone will drink the cup one day. Either Jesus drank it for you on the cross... Or you will drink it when you stand before God on the last day. Have you decided who will drink the cup that you have, that we all have? At the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 3, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. We all have this cup, and unless it's taken away, it remains with you to deal with on your own. What does Jesus say to you, those who will not have anyone else drink the cup but you? He weeps over you, over your unrepentant heart, the heart that doesn't want forgiveness from God. He weeps and he says, You deserve God's anger against your sin but I've paid for the debt of your sin by taking his anger on myself. I've drunk the cup of God's wrath for you if you would only let me ask. Don't get to the moment where you stand before God and realize that your cup is undrunk. If you reject Jesus to drink the cup for you, It'll be you that drinks the cup, and the cost is great. To reject that is to actively accept hell, eternal agony and separation from the perfectly good God who made you. Don't. Jesus has drunk the cup for you if you'd only let him. Peter can't see this yet. He's got his own agenda for the kind of Messiah that he wants Jesus to be. And whatever it is, it could be anything. It's just not who Jesus says he is. It's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus himself says he is. So, Peter ends up having this fake idea of who Jesus is. Which brings me to my last point, which is, Burn your plastic Jesus. We can all have this fake idea of Jesus in our head, an idea that doesn't match with who Jesus is in reality. And you need to burn that fake Jesus, that fake plastic Jesus. It's not real. Let's have a look at how Jesus feels about Peter's fake Jesus. Have a look in verse 23. Verse 23 says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, this is after Peter said it, it'll never happen, you'll never go to the cross. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter has plans. Peter's got plans about who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. And for Jesus to die would ruin Peter's plans. To try to steer Jesus away, though, from his determination to go to the cross and die, which is what Peter wants, would be to be in direct opposition against the plans of God. Just as Satan's plans are in direct opposition to God. So at this point, what Peter is saying is as good as what Satan wants. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter has made Jesus into something that serves his own plans and aspirations, what he wants, what he wants to do with his life. We can do this. We can make a fake Jesus in our life. We can keep Jesus on the outside of our life and we can have our plans, the things we want, and Jesus just rolls around us. He's just circling our desires, our needs and our wants. Here's what makes our dreams come true. No. Or we can have this fake Jesus who only becomes important when we really need something, like getting the high mark or dating that boy or girl or good weather for your party or whatever. These are merely human concerns. They are nothing in the scheme of eternity. If Jesus exists in your life just to serve your plans and your desires, you have made yourself a plastic Jesus. What about the token Jesus? This is another type of fake Jesus. The token Jesus is to say you're a Christian on the outside, you wear the cross, but you're not a Christian on the inside. There's heaps of fake Jesuses. There's the shelf Jesus, that you just get out when you need him or when it's convenient for you. And there's the trophy Jesus, to make you look good and look at at what I've got. They're all plastic Jesuses. To keep a plastic Jesus in your life is stupid. It's a dumb security blanket that's too small to hide the, the, the sin in your life. It won't cover it. And it will only make you feel as though you've dealt with the problem of sin. It won't actually deal with the problem of sin in your life. You remain an enemy against God. Fake Jesus can't help you with that. If it's not the real Jesus, who died for you on the cross and drank the cup of your sin, the cup that the enemies of God deserve, if it's not that Jesus, it's a fake, cheap, Jesus it's worthless and you need to burn it now you might say well that's me I've done that I've asked Jesus to drink my cup the cup that I deserve and now the job's done right what else is there left to do he's up there on the shelf well you've missed the point that Jesus is the king the messiah God's great chosen king, the king who now rules your life. Turning to him means that you don't just turn to him once and then forget he ever existed again. No, that's to turn back to being a rebel against God who doesn't acknowledge that he's king in your life. The Christian life is much, much more than that. It's not a cheap ticket into heaven. It's to change the direction of your life To not live it for yourself anymore, but to live with Jesus as your Messiah, as your King. But not a cruel King, but as a King who's good to you and loves you and loves you enough to pay the debt of your sin that you owe by dying on the cross. Have you asked Jesus to take your debt? Do you still have the cup in your hands? Who will drink it? Will it be Jesus on the cross or you on the last day? If that's you, if you still have the cup in your hand and it's undrunk, ask for the forgiveness that you have through Jesus. Do it tonight. Turn your life over to him as your king. Why don't I pray to finish? Heavenly Father, um, we have lived as enemies against you. You would be justified to destroy us. We are so unworthy of your forgiveness. We're sorry we've lived like this. So we can't help but give thanks for Jesus who's paid for our sin that we might be forgiven. Help us live with you as our king. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.